Several Issues Etc. regular guests are candidates for leadership positions in the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Every LCMS congregation has received nomination forms for the President and Vice Presidents of Synod. Please encourage your pastor and congregational leaders to fill out and return these nomination forms before February 28th of 2023. Learn more at issuesetc.org slash 2023 nominations. Issuesetc.org slash 2023 nominations. certainly had some difficult things to say. Some of them are, we should say, original to him. But what if he is quoting the Old Testament? What if he's quoting words where God says to his people, you are gods? And he's being accused of blasphemy. That's his defense. Does not the word of God say, you are gods? Welcome back to Issues Etc. It's part six of our series, on the difficult sayings of Jesus. Today, in John chapter 10, Jesus claimed to be the Son of God and, quoting that psalm, you are gods. Pastor David Peterson is our guest. He is pastor of Redeemer Lutheran Church in Fort Wayne, Indiana, and departmental editor of Godestine's The Journal of Lutheran Liturgy. David, welcome back. Thank you, Todd. Good to be here. For the really big picture here, I think we need to note for the listener that while in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, there's something of a secret at least initially, about Jesus' divinity. John's gospel, from almost the very first word in the prologue, and then, of course, as the narrative begins, Jesus is not hiding who he is. He's openly saying, I am the Son of God. Yeah, absolutely. And that's why a lot of people suggested that John's gospel is written against the uh, Arians, who the heresy that denies the divinity of Jesus. And it, it does seem very on-the-nose the question here is going to be be one of blasphemy, and I want to ask you from the outset, who's really blaspheming in this account? So John's gospel calls them the Jews, and by that it means the Jewish leaders, right? So this would be the Pharisees, the Sadducees, maybe the scribes, but it's the Jewish leaders that are being blasphemous in how they're responding to Jesus and how they're refusing to listen to Scripture. Here is the passage And we'll get to the larger context in just a minute, but here's the passage in question, verse 34 of John chapter 10. It begins, Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I said you are gods? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said, I am the Son of God? So how could we immediately misread this particular saying of Jesus? Well, it's almost, I mean, if we just had those verses and nothing else, it would almost seem to be a denial of Jesus of his divinity, right? He's saying, well, all Christians are gods, right? The Bible calls the leaders of the world gods. So then what's the big deal if I call myself the son of God? It seems to almost distance himself from his divinity in some sense, or elevate, I guess, in some weird way, humanity to his equal. So it is a strange-sounding passage, right, to call men gods, and that's probably the best way it could be misunderstood in some sense. I mean, it could only go kind of worse from there. So let's look at the larger context to get at how he is actually dealing with his opponents here. 
All right. Well, I'll just read it to you, starting in verse 22. At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. But you do not believe, because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, It is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law? I said, You are gods. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, You are blaspheming, because I said, I am the Son of God? If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is me and I am in my Father. Again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. So it all starts out with this accusation that Jesus is not speaking plainly, right? They say, tell us plainly if you're the Messiah or not. And he says, of course, look, I have told you and you do not believe. So the reality is they are refusing to listen. They're feigning confusion or they're feigning religious zeal as though all of a sudden they actually care about purity and being faithful to the scriptures. And in fact, it's very clear they're just looking for an excuse to murder. So Jesus is responding to their hypocrisy. And he says, they're blasphemy. You are blaspheming because of my confession that I am the Messiah, that I am the Son of God. So that's what's being rebuked. So before we get to the you are gods and deal with that, because that's difficult no matter what, and more difficult when Jesus cites it the way he does, does the very fact that he refers to God as his Father, maybe we've heard that so many times it doesn't sound blasphemous to us anymore. Yeah, I think you're exactly right. You know, well, because we believe that the Father is uh, the Father of Jesus Christ, but it is a spectacular claim because he's not saying our Father, right? He's distinguishing my Father and your Father, as he does in many places. We do not have the exact same relationship to the Father that Jesus does, even though we are the brother and the bride of Christ, and rightly call his father our father, there is a distinction. And if you or I were to speak the way that Jesus does, it would be blasphemy, because there is, of course, only one God. And it is also interesting how negatively they respond, even though it's the wrong response, it's the response to the right thing. I mean, they are recognizing what's at stake and the claim that Jesus is making, right? Nobody thinks at the time of Jesus that maybe Jesus is claiming to just be another teacher or another rabbi, or even that he was a man and would eventually become God or something like that. They they recognize the boldness with which he speaks, the authority by which he speaks, And they should, of course, also recognize this through the miracles. But more telling than the miracles, 
are in fact his actual words. I've often wondered in verse 30 there when he says, I and the Father are one, Jews of the day could not have missed the Old Testament creed that he is riffing on there, the Shema, from several places. I believe in Deuteronomy and Numbers, Hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord our God is one. And then he comes out and says, the Father and I are one. Yeah, it's great there because in the Shema, it's actually the word for God is in the plural. So it's I, the Lord, your gods am one. So it's a grammatical error, and it's the sort of grammatical error that chafes on the native speaker's ear, just like it would in English. And so there is this confession in the Shema already and throughout the Old Testament of the threefold plurality within the unity of the Godhead. Of course, the word Trinity is not used, and the personal names, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, aren't revealed yet. All we have is I am or he is, but the threefold plurality is there, and yet the singularity. And so here, of course, we don't have the Holy Spirit named explicitly, but you're absolutely right. When he says, I and the Father are one, he's not claiming here the spiritual indwelling of the Father. He's claiming to be equal to the Father according to his divinity. And what's their response in verse 31? They pick up stones to stone him. This is worse than just misusing God's name. This is kind of the most extreme form of blasphemy, if it weren't true. It's part six of our series on the difficult sayings of Jesus. Today we're in John chapter 10 with Jesus claimed to be the Son of God. Pastor David Peterson is our guest, pastor of Redeemer Lutheran Church in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Thanks to Redeemer Lutheran for being an Issues Etc. congregational sponsor. Most churches are preparing their budgets now for next year. You can find out how your confessional Lutheran church can support this worldwide outreach by adding Issues Etc. to its mission or advertising budget on the support donate page at issuesetc.org or by giving us a call, 618-223-8385. Become an Issues Etc. congregational sponsor in 2023. On the other side, we'll talk about Jesus' two-track call to faith, his works, and his word. Casting Christ's Net on the Internet. You're listening to Issues Etc. Several Issues Etc. regular guests are candidates for leadership positions in the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Every LCMS congregation has received nomination forms for the president and vice presidents of Synod. Please encourage your pastor and congregational leaders to fill out and return these nomination forms before February 28th of 2023. Learn more at issuesetc.org slash 2023 nominations. Issuesetc.org slash 2023 nominations. Psalm 144.1 Blessed be the Lord my rock who trains my hands for war and my fingers for battle. Those serving in the armed forces want LCMS chaplains. We need courageous pastors to bring the gospel and sacraments to those protecting our nation, along with wise counsel and the peace found only in Christ Jesus. If you are between the age of 26 and 43 and have a heart for ministry in the armed forces, call 314-996-1337 or email lcmschaps at lcms.org. Thanks to the following congregations for standing with us by becoming an Issues Etc. congregational sponsor. 
Bethlehem Lutheran, Parma, Ohio, Epiphany Lutheran, Door, Michigan, Good Shepherd Lutheran, Sherman, Illinois, Emmanuel Lutheran, Holloway, Minnesota, Messiah Lutheran, Lebanon, Illinois, Peace with Christ Lutheran, Fort Collins, Colorado, Shepherd of the Valley Lutheran, Perrysburg, Ohio, St. Paul Lutheran, Bridgeport, Nebraska, The Good Shepherd Lutheran, Inglewood, California, and Zion Lutheran, Dexter, Iowa. Find out how your confessional Lutheran church can support this worldwide outreach by including Issues Etc. in your mission or advertising budget. Just go to issuesetc.org, click Support Donate, and print a one-page flyer. When your congregation becomes an Issues Etc. sponsor, we'll publicize your church on the podcast, at our website, and in the Issues Etc. journal. Welcome back to Issues Etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. It's our series on the difficult sayings of Jesus. We are talking about Jesus' claim to be the Son of God and calling God's people gods themselves. Pastor David Peterson is our guest. In about 20 minutes, we'll discuss faith, evidence, and skepticism with Shane Rosenthal. David, Jesus has set up this, I'll call it a two-track call to faith, his works and his word or his testimony about himself. Yeah, that's right. And the more convincing thing should be his testimony about himself. And we see that, I think, particularly in the sheep, right? Because the sheep hear his voice and they follow him. The sheep are not following his miracles. The miracles are proofs and evidence for faith, but faith cometh by hearing. I don't think there's any examples in the Gospels of anybody really being converted by the miracles. In fact, the miracles often cause people to respond badly, right? Like the kind of classic example being the feeding of the 5,000. And then they think, this is nice. Let's grab him and make him do this all the time. Sort of the goose laying the golden egg kind of thing. And we have the then the kind of a typical response to that wrong attitude would be, the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, where the rich man thinks a miracle is what's needed for his brothers to not make the same mistake he makes. And Abraham says, right, they have Moses and the prophets. If they won't listen to them, it won't matter even if someone rises from the dead. And this is, I think, hard for us to sort of believe in some sense. I mean, it's a struggle to believe that miracles aren't more powerful than the word because we think we ought to be people who believe what they see and sort of know what's real on the basis of what we see. I mean, you know, this is kind of the modern scientific theory, right? It's all about observation, the scientific method. But faith cometh by hearing. And if you won't listen to Moses and the prophets, it just doesn't matter. So he does say, you should believe my works. You should be able to recognize them as being from the Father, as being indisputably good, and as being also indisputably messianic, particularly the healing of the blind, because no prophets in the Old Testament do that. And Isaiah says that's a particular sign of the Messiah. So Jesus is fulfilling all of the signs. The prophecies are falling like flies, right? And nobody ever thinks he's a charlatan. Nobody ever says his miracles are fake, that he's posing, that they're tricks. So you ought to at least be able to recognize this, and then on the basis of them, submit and recognize you're in the presence of divine power. But of course, that doesn't really work. They're not going to believe that because they reject him as a person, because they reject his word, because they've rejected his word already in the Old Testament. So 
if you deny the scriptures, even if Jesus comes back from the dead, even if he talks to you in the incarnation during the time of his humiliation, even if he performs miracles, if you won't hear Moses and the prophets, you're not hearing any of it. They would have been satisfied. And here I go back to John chapter 3, where one of these leaders, Nicodemus, comes to him covertly. And the first thing he says to Jesus, and they would have been satisfied to accept him as a teacher sent from God. We know that you're a teacher sent from God. No one could do the mighty works that you do unless God had sent him. They think they have him pegged as a God-sent teacher, which I guess would be a prophet. What is the gap between mighty teacher sent from God doing miracles and son sent from God? The mighty worker sent from God that does miracles is not to be worshipped. And we are to worship God in spirit, to worship the Son in spirit and in truth. And that's what they refuse to do, right? I think actually, I haven't tracked this completely, but I think every time that somebody calls Jesus rabbi or teacher in the Gospels, it's always a mistake, kind of culminating with Mary Magdalene in the garden. That is to say, it's not blasphemy exactly to call him rabbi, right? But it's faint praise. It's sort of like, calling your mother, you know, Mrs. Wilkin. And it's a kind of distancing thing and sort of puts him in his place. Well, you're a man like us. You're a teacher. And they should be calling him Lord, Curios, right? They should be worshiping him. So I almost think when they call him teacher, it's a bit like when the Pope says to Luther, look, you can teach whatever you want in the positive or the affirmative sense. We don't mind. You can teach anything you want. Just stop condemning those that you think are wrong, right? It's kind of like a bribe. I mean, it's like, we'll give you this much, but I mean, Jesus just isn't going to accept that. He is God in the flesh who has come to redeem creation. And in a way, I think that's, in a sense, also kind of what the devil's doing in the temptation. Part of that is, you know, why don't you go ahead and do some things that make more sense in a, a sort of human way, right? Why don't you perform miracles that are more fun and that are more convenient? Why are you insisting on dying? Is that the only way to save these people? Why don't you just wave your hand and make it all go away? And Jesus just flat out refuses. That's a temptation. It's a lie because God is just. He has to die to satisfy justice. The forgiveness of sins does not mean nothing ever happened, right? He doesn't just wave it away. It's not a magic wand because he is both just and he is the justifier. So all of that is sort of, I think, of a piece, just what you're saying. You know, mighty teacher, it's faint praise. The first commandment requires that we worship Jesus. He is God himself that's created us and has come to redeem us. And this is the thing they're on to it. I mean, they know that's what the Messiah requires, what's expected, what's actually worshipful. And in their fallen flesh and rebellion, that's the one thing they just flat out refuse to give them. What is this, it is written in your law, all about? Well, he's quoting Psalm 82, and it's, it's only eight verses, so I'll just read it quickly. God has taken his place in the divine council in the midst of the gods. He holds judgment. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. They have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. I said, you are gods, sons of the Most High, all of you. 
Nevertheless, like men you shall die and fall like any prince. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all the nations. So it's that verse 6 that he's quoting. I said you are gods. He said that in the first verse of Psalm 82. And he's speaking here about the kings of the earth, the judges, the rulers, those who are sitting and are what Luther calls the masks of God, right? That is, that according to their vocations, their place in life, where they've been called by God, they actually are exercising divine authority in the place of God, or they're supposed to be. And then that's why you get this, what they're supposed to be doing, right? God sits among the rulers of the earth, the kings, the judges, and he holds judgment. And he says, how long will you judge unjustly? and show partiality to the wicked. You have divine authority, you have been given this duty to carry out, and you're using it for your own benefit, and you're acting as cowards, and so forth, right? You're not giving justice to the weak and the fatherless, you're not maintaining the right of the afflicted and the destitute, you're not rescuing the weak and the needy, delivering them from the hand of the wicked. You, who are supposed to be wise, have neither knowledge nor understanding, but you're walking in darkness, and all the foundations of the earth are shaken. The foundations of the earth here is a metaphor for the family, right? That is that society is built upon the divine institution of the home, father, mother, son, daughter, and all the estates come out of that. And when there is injustice, when those who have divine authority, whether they be kings or fathers or pastors or mothers or right, whatever they, in these spheres, when they do not enact justice, when they do not act according to both natural law and revealed law, society itself humanity is coming apart and is being destroyed. And God won't tolerate that forever. So I said, you are gods, sons of the most high, all of you. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince, that the inheritance of original sin is physical death. And you're exercising divine authority. So I'm saying that you're gods, but you're not really gods. You're going to die like men, and you better be prepared for that. And you need to consider how you respond to God's word, how you live your life, and how you carry out your office. And you need to throw yourself upon God's mercy, because if you think that because you've been given divine authority, you are divine, you are sorely mistaken, and you're going to hell. And then the last verse, arise, O God, judge the earth, and you shall inherit all the nations, that is, all the Gentiles. So this is a condemnation of fallen humanity and its inability to live up to the law, particularly those who have authority, but it's a directly pointed in Jesus' mouth in the temple there, directly pointed against the bad leadership or immoral leadership of the Jews that are lacking mercy and that are refusing him at that very moment. It prophesies their death and it threatens their damnation. And finally, he is foretelling as well the Gentile character of the church of the future, right? That's also going to stand as a judgment against them. That is that judge the earth, oh God, you're going to inherit all of the Gentiles. We need to bear in mind that the Jewish leaders here would have been well-versed in scripture. I mean, many of them, because copies were not readily available, probably had most certainly the Psalms committed to memory. This, oh, yeah. This would have been like quoting one line from a familiar, well-memorized hymn, and it all comes flooding into their minds. They're hearing the whole psalm here, aren't they? Yeah, absolutely. They, they know exactly what he means. 
And again, so, you know, their response is to try to kill him. Pastor David Peterson is our guest. It's part six of our series on the difficult sayings of Jesus. Today we're in John chapter 10. Jesus claimed to be the Son of God and calling the people of God, gods as well. Right now, many churches are planning their budgets for the next fiscal year. You can promote your confessional Lutheran church and support the worldwide outreach of issues, etc. by becoming a congregational sponsor. When your church pledges $1,000, we'll publicize your congregation on the podcast, at our website, and in the Issues Etc. journal. Learn more on the Support Donate page at issuesetc.org. Don't miss your congregation's budget deadline. Become an Issues Etc. congregational sponsor. What is eternal life? How do you understand it? How do you imagine it? We're full of all sorts of ideas of what eternal life might be like. And yet, the scriptures are clear. Eternal life centers on Christ and him crucified for the sins of the world. The November issue of the Lutheran Witness explains some of these misconceptions about eternal life and what the scriptures say. So to learn more, pick up your copy of the November issue of the Lutheran Witness. Visit witness.lcms.org to learn more. The Lutheran Witness, teaching you to interpret the world from a Lutheran perspective. Providing artillery support for the church militant on the front lines, you're listening to Issues Etc. You wish your classical school could do more for struggling learners? Uncertain where to begin? The Memoria Press Schools Division includes Cheryl Swope, author of Simply Classical, a beautiful education for any child. The Schools Division will happily assist your school. Memoria Press offers an entire line of special needs resources for teaching math, reading, spelling, and more. Contact schools at memoriapress.com or order directly from simplyclassical.com with coupon code LPR23. I'm Chaplain Sean Denzer, Director of Worship for the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. Congregations work hard to keep the Word of Christ dwelling richly in His disciples now and into eternal life. We work to help and support that effort. Learn more at lcms.org worship. You'll find resources on the church here, Bible studies on the hymns of the day, audio helps for learning to sing our services, and look for worship planning resources to find the latest from LCMS Worship. That's lcms.org worship. May the word of Christ dwell richly in you. Welcome back to Issues Etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. We are talking about the difficult sayings of Jesus in John chapter 10. Pastor David Peterson is our guest. He's pastor of Redeemer Lutheran Church in Fort Wayne, Indiana, departmental editor of Godestine's The Journal of Lutheran Liturgy, and he's also a graduate of Concordia Theological Seminary, Fort Wayne, Indiana, where they form servants in Jesus Christ who teach the faithful, reach the lost, and care for all. Learn more about studying for the vocations of pastor or deaconess at ctsfw.edu or by calling 1-800-481-2155, Concordia Theological Seminary, Fort Wayne, Indiana. David, you say that we need to keep the tension that we sense when we hear Jesus' words, you are gods, because as you say, theology isn't a game for slogans and cherry-picking. Well, I mean, the passage sounds weird. Uh, It's hard to hear, and it causes us, I think, when we hear it read— or when we read it, right, there's a kind of, it causes us to step back and to have to think more deeply and carefully and to go searching for context and the like. And 
that's a great lesson to be learned. And uh, again, kind of Jesus, I think, is showing them and us that in some sense, we're not as good at theology as we would like to think we are. You know, Luther says, if you can rightly divide law and gospel, you deserve the doctor's hat. And I can remember being in seventh grade and learning the proper distinction between law and gospel and thinking I understood it and I probably should get that hat. And I think we're all have fallen into that at various points, right? When really what Luther means when he says that is nobody should wear this hat. This is an impossible art for the fallen sons of men that requires constant striving and attention. And it's, it's more difficult than it seems. It's easy to sort of give simplistic definitions in the abstract. It's much more difficult to actually use as an interpretive lens correctly in Holy Scripture and then to apply it to our own lives and to the lives of others. And, and here we have kind of this example where this thing comes and it ought to just humble us right? That this is a serious thing and it's not a game that we can use or we should use against one another or that we should be sort of boasting in, but we should receive it in humility, carefully, seriously, and with some trepidation. In the last verses of the broader account, Jesus essentially says, look, you don't believe you can falsify my claim very easily If I'm not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. What's he saying there? Yeah, I mean, again, right? This is the challenge all the time. Find something in his teaching that is contradicted by the Bible. They can't do it. Disprove one of his miracles. They can't do it. And then look at the prophecies and see if he does or does not fulfill them. Well, all three of those things are just indisputably true. That's what he's saying. He's like, exposing again their hypocrisy, their willful disobedience and disbelief that is irrational. So it's like Pharaoh, who just, he knows, but he doesn't want to know. He knows that the finger of God is here, and yet he would rather go to hell than submit to it. He doesn't want to give up the status quo or his power or whatever it is. It's, It's irrational. It doesn't make any sense. But that's how this is too. So It's just a rebuke and a kind of exposure to show how foolish the hard hearts of men are. So, in essence, what are Jesus' criteria for proof that he is, in fact, the Messiah sent from the Father? Well, so the works that he's doing do bear witness to his goodness, to the kind of God that he is, right? The character of the miracles matter. He's not doing weird stuff like making frogs turn into horses or fly, right? He's restoring creation, the goodness of creation, and he's doing them in the Father's name, and they bear, therefore, the Father's character, so that, that's the first kind of line. And then we've already talked about like his words and the, the sheep recognize that. They know the shepherd's voice and then he gives them eternal life. They don't follow the works really exactly. They follow his words or his voice and of course his person and his work is his death and his resurrection in some sense more than turning water into wine. And then he claims also this unity with the father which is, again, demonstrated both in in miracles, in the crucifixion, is obedient to the Father, and then vindicated, of course, by the Father in the resurrection, raised by the glory of the Father, and then also in his teaching. So the miracles, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and his teaching 
all show perfect unity and obedience to the Father. And then finally, there's this recognition then that the sheep were given to the Messiah by the Father, right? And then in him, they are secure. So this is the Messiah's purpose. So how is that a proof? All of that is to demonstrate that Jesus is showing them in conformity with the Old Testament that this isn't just the Messiah that we need. This is the precisely the Messiah that was promised. And again, it ought to be recognizable according to the Bible. You say that their unbelief is irrational. What do you mean by that? Unbelief is always irrational, even though it sometimes claims formal logic or something as its basis. It's irrational because men have to convince themselves against what they know to be true in a kind of an insistent way. I would particularly think about atheism, right? Atheists say they don't believe in God. I always say I don't believe in them. So what you have with an atheist is an intellectual theory, this idea that there is no God. And then what you have to do if you want to be an atheist is you just have to insist on that idea as a kind of intellectual standard or almost a virtue or worldview that nothing can change no matter what. You know, it's a stubbornness that is ridiculous, that actually defies experience, that defies the human heart, and that defies the evidence. I know it gets a lot of mocking in sort of anti-Christian circles, and I know it's not exactly purely Christian, but this whole intelligent design theory is right in the sense that we can see the creator's fingerprints in creation, and we can see that creation, if we're willing to just be Any child would recognize if you see a house, you know someone built it. It didn't just grow. And the complexity of life and of the world, the fact that we can't actually recreate life, we can destroy things, but we can't really make things, right? So we can kill a frog, we can't make a frog. That shows, right, this divine reality that's revealed in nature and that all men know. But there is a kind of stubbornness of unbelief that is irrational that refuses it. You know, when we talk about spiritual things or when we talk about the subordination of reason to faith, we never mean by that that faith itself is unreasonable or that the Bible's unreasonable. Sometimes some of the things that have been revealed to us are beyond our capacity to comprehend at this point, and maybe they always will be. But that doesn't make them actually illogical. God is actually a God of reason. In fact, the word logos, you know, in John 1, in the beginning was the word and the word became flesh. That's the word for reason or logic. And it's a closely related reality. So, I mean, maybe foolish is a more biblical way of of speaking of what unbelief is. It really highlights here with about a minute what John says in the prologue to this gospel when he says he came unto his own and his own received him not. I mean, that's really an understatement because that makes it sound like they just kind of looked the other way or said, eh, not today, Jesus. They really did not receive him. They rejected him. Yeah. So it's Luke, but, you know, right, the innkeeper. You know, the innkeeper is likely a relative of Joseph's because there's no hotels. This is kind of a guest room. And he is rejected actively. And, of course, even they try to kill him. Pastor David Peterson is pastor of Redeemer Lutheran Church in Fort Wayne, Indiana. He's departmental editor of Gottesdienst, the Journal of Lutheran Liturgy. 
David, thank you so much. Thank you. My pleasure. Shane Rosenthal of The Humble Skeptic joins us next. We're going to talk about faith, evidence, and skepticism. Several Issues Etc. regular guests are candidates for leadership positions in the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Every LCMS congregation has received nomination forms for the president and vice presidents of Synod. Please encourage your pastor and congregational leaders to fill out and return these nomination forms before February 28th of 2023. Learn more at issuesetc.org slash 2023 nominations. IssuesETC.org slash 2023 nominations. Deaconesses are women trained to share the gospel of Jesus Christ through works of mercy, spiritual care, and teaching of the Christian faith. The word deaconess means servant. Find out more on how you can serve in the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod through the vocation of deaconess at lcms.org slash deaconess. Working in faith, laboring in love, Remaining steadfast in the hope of our Lord Jesus Christ. LCMS Deaconess Ministry. LCMS.org slash Deaconess. Join Lutherans for Life in Washington, D.C. Thursday, January 19th through Saturday, January 21st, 2023. Go to Lutheransforlife.org to learn more about LFL's Conference for Adults, LFL at the March, and the Y for Life Youth Conference in Washington, D.C., the registration deadline is December 15th. Lutherans for Life, equipping Lutherans and their neighbors to be gospel-motivated voices for life. Lutheransforlife.org Sanctifying your commute with the Word of God. You're listening to Issues Etc. Issues Etc. guest Dr. Ben Mays of Concordia Theological Seminary, Fort Wayne, Indiana. Here's what Martin Luther says about the pastoral office. My pastor is practicing the virtue that increases God's kingdom, fills heaven with saints, plunders hell, robs the devil, wards off death, represses sin, preserves peace and unity, and plants all kinds of virtue in the people. In a word, he is making a new world. He builds not a poor temporary house, but an eternal and beautiful paradise in which God himself is glad to dwell. We are calling good men to step up. Come to Concordia Theological Seminary, Fort Wayne, Indiana. Learn more about studying for the vocation of pastor at ctsfw.edu or call 1-800-481-2155. Concordia Theological Seminary, Fort Wayne, Indiana.